Time for Short Play. Alex, the New American Standard Bible is getting an update scheduled to drop spring 2021. I know, Nick. I can't wait. Aren't you excited? You know what? Wake me up when the English Standard Version gets an update, would you? Well, I think you'll like the SPV the best. SPV? What translation is that? The Swordplay Version. Boom! Boom, you got me. (laughs) Welcome to Swordplay, offering a double-edged perspective on Scripture. This is uh, your, these are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood, an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through the end of the chapter. That's right. We didn't want to do a four-hour podcast, so we just broke it up a little bit for you. <laughs> so if you if you made it through our last episode, well done to you. Kudos, diligent listener. We're going to pick up where we left off. Now we're in verse 13, and we have some questions about Peter's comments concerning the governing authorities. And so, Nick, the first question for verses 13 and 14, what are the limits of the Christian's submission or subjection to governing authorities? Yeah, man, this is a this is a very relevant question for the times in which we are living with uh, Oh, really? Why is that? Well, there's this uh <laughs> this global pandemic going on. Uh COVID-19, I don't know if you heard about it, but anyway, Uh, Christians certainly have obligations to the state, and those are motivated by our theology. Uh, It is for the Lord's sake that we are to be subject to every human institution. Submission and obedience to governing authorities is typical of ethical instructions that are found in the New Testament. You can cross-reference this with Romans 13, 1 through 7, and also Titus 3 and verse 1. Peter's admonition for Christian submission to governing authorities must be understood in light of the instances of civil disobedience that are found elsewhere in the New Testament. Hmm. There are instances, times when the apostles, with Peter as their spokesman, they refused to comply with the orders of civil authorities because they were in opposition to the orders of God. Uh, For example, uh, probably the best-known one is Acts 5, 29, where they are told that uh, you can't teach in Jesus' name anymore. And in 5, verse 29, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. So uh, you can also see Acts 4, verses 19 and 20 for another instance of this. These appear to be the exception rather than the rule. You submit to uh, good government unless they seek to force Christians to violate God's will. That's bad. Uh, If they try to do that, then you need to obey God. The state also has obligations to the people. The state is supposed to punish evildoers and praise do-gooders. Ruling authorities are to do justice and pursue righteousness, even the kind that's outlined by God himself, like in Psalm 72. Really hone in there on verses 12 through 14. Paul says of the emperor, he does not bear the sword in vain over in Romans 13 and verse 4. Now, whatever that means, and I know people kind of get wrapped around that and debate it, whatever it means, it certainly means that governing authorities are to be an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer, as the rest of verse 4 says. So, 
When governments get this twisted, when they are not watching out for the little guy, that would be the needy, the poor, the weak, then government has failed in its function. Uh, and so those are some principles, I think, that are brought to bear on this question of, you know, what, what do we do as Christians in response to government? What do you think, Alex? You know, for as complicated as this issue is and can become, I tried to take a step back and think of it in the simplest terms that I can think of. I believe there are two limits to submitting to the governing authorities. First, the government cannot stop you from doing what is moral and righteous, like the apostles preaching, for example. You noted that in the book of Acts. Second, the government cannot make you do something that is immoral, like when Antiochus IV Epiphanes tried to make Jews eat pork. You can find that in Second Maccabees. And so those are two hard stop limits. They can't, government can't stop you from doing what is moral and righteous. They cannot make you do something that is immoral and unrighteous. So the elephant in the room at the moment in the United States is 2020. Hmm. Never in my lifetime have I felt the need to examine my own submission to governing authorities so closely. Who would have thought that state governors could declare an emergency and then speak legislation into existence? That's a lot of power. (laughs) So, So if churches, if they wanted to meet in a way that defies the governing authorities, then they certainly could, because church is a moral and righteous obligation for the Christian. If the Christian did not want to wear a mask, then he certainly could, because wearing a mask may actually make you more likely to get sick. It is immoral to be forced to do something that can make you sick. The same would apply to a mandatory vaccine, by the way. So now that I've opened up that can of worms, Nick, any more thoughts? <laughs> uh, so I, I think about your categories. Um, so uh, the one perspective, the apostles preaching, um, the government can't stop you from doing what is moral and righteous. Conversely, I think the same thing could be true. The, the, the good you know you should do, and if you don't do it, that is sin. That's what James says. It is the, the good that we know we should do is to preach Christ. And so to not do that would be immoral, right? And so I think uh, for those who may be here, Second Maccabees, and you know their their uh, hair stands on end or something, <laughs> you can show it in Scripture, right? Yeah, yeah. At least the, the canon right. and all that. So, um, but uh, yeah, we talked about vaccines before. In was yeah. it uh, uh, after hours two? I think is when we did that. Yeah, I think so. And so, uh, diligent listener, if you haven't listened to those thoughts, go over there and Alex does an expose on. <laughs> on vaccines that's right all right well we solved that problem what other what other of the world's problems do we have to solve yeah verse 13 he talks about the emperor as supreme uh to be subject to the emperor uh alex who was the king who was the emperor when peter wrote these things yeah so emperor nero that was the emperor when peter penned first peter great guy by the way right yeah, exactly. He has his quirks, you know, but, you know, a few rough edges. <laughs> so, as we noted in our introduction, uh, this is the guy who burned down most of Rome 
just to rebuild it in his own image, and then proceeded to place the blame for the fire on Christians. Uh, He had Christians tortured and raped in the circus and Colosseum for entertainment, eaten by lions and animals. He burned Christians alive on stakes in his courtyard at night to light up his backyard. And that's just the tip of his depravity. It's much worse than that, much more extensive. And it's surprising to see that Peter never calls for a revolution or an insurrection. In fact, uh, Nero will kill Peter not too long after this letter is penned. But the reason that the Christian doesn't need to topple governments, at least in the traditional sense of doing that, is because the real revolution lies in the Great Commission. The governing authorities, they may try to persecute, they may try to divide, they may try to isolate the Christian but it will eventually backfire in their faces. This is how it always happens throughout the last 2,000 years. And so that's important to keep in mind as the church. What are your thoughts, Nick? Yeah, the emperor, the Roman emperor, he was the one who exercised uh, continuous control over the empire. And in that way, he was supreme. I think that may be what uh, Peter is alluding to there with that word supreme. Uh, And again, considering the emperor at the time that Peter was writing was Nero, This principle is binding even when rulers are neither Christian uh, nor even, in a remote sense, moral. Um, Right, right. And so, uh, very sobering instruction here. Yeah, it's hard. It's a hard hard thing to hear, but it's, it's what he said. Verse 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Um, Alex, what did... Peter have in mind when he said to honor the emperor, honor the king? Yeah, this is, again, tough, because in light of Nero's evil deeds, uh, we can first start by what Peter did not mean, right? He did not mean that we approve of what the king does, uh, nor does it mean that we assist or participate in what the king does. Ah, but here's the kicker, right? If our taxes are used by the king for evil, do we pay taxes? That's a tough question. Luckily, Jesus answered that question for us, and the answer was yes, we still pay taxes. If you remember, he said, what is Caesar's give to Caesar? What has his image on it belongs to him. That's the money. That's the silver. And what is God's give to God? And did God put his image on anything? Hmm, Let me see. Oh, yeah, humans, humanity, we belong to God. His image is on us. And so Paul affirms the same thing in Romans thirteen six. We pay taxes. That's likely what Peter has in mind here when he says to honor the king. He's referring to a tribute payment. In other words, your taxes. Uh, for more specifics, the Greek word for honor is tamao. And it can be used in the sense of having regard for someone or for something like an office of authority. Uh, also, the word can be used in the sense of setting a price on something. So Peter calls for us to honor, have regard for all people, but then he also says to honor or pay a price for the king and thus the taxes idea. And so I think that's probably what Peter is hinting at. Any thoughts, Nick? Yeah, so Peter addresses not only what Christians are to do related to governing authorities, honor them and be subject. He also gives the why. Be subject and honor for the Lord's sake. That's the why. 
right. uh, for Jesus' sake, is reason enough for Christians not to be anarchists or insurrectionists, right? Because it's Jesus, is, if Jesus is the model, he shows up and he doesn't march on Rome and, you know, lead some kind of uh, rebellion against the Roman Empire. He, he comes and he himself is subject to the governing authorities, pays taxes and all those things. So, yeah, He could have called 10,000 angels, right? Could but have. He, he didn't. There was a purpose behind that, just like Peter will get to the purpose behind our suffering. Verse 16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Uh, Alex, talk a moment here about this uh, using freedom as some kind of cover for evil. What does it mean to use your freedom as a covering for evil? You know, I would think that part of what goes through the mind of these Christian exiles is possibly revenge. Because from my perspective, I'm viewing this as post-fire in Rome. And you have a mass exodus from Rome. And so I think a lot of these exiles are coming from that exodus. Um, Maybe what's going through their mind is revenge, right? In what way can I repay Caesar for his evil towards us? Uh, Maybe I shouldn't pay taxes Um, armed rebellion, perhaps, destruction of property. That's not relevant for today, right? Hmm. I'm sure the opportunity for these kinds of things, these temptations, I think they would abound for these Christians. And, of course, the justifying reasons would follow. After all, the Jews had already been dealing with this dilemma for quite some time. That's why you had zealots. That's why you had the Sicarii. Yet, Peter affirms two things. First, We do have freedom, meaning that our allegiance and authority in Christ, that does outrank the earthly authorities. But second, there are still moral restrictions on what we can do against the government. Peter urges their thoughts instead to be on how much good they can do, silencing the ignorance of foolish men who might accuse them of evil. Don't prove them right, but win them over with righteousness. And this builds into the purpose of, of our suffering. What do you think, Nick? Uh, Wayne Grudem, I think, states it negatively. He says, Christians do not have freedom to do wrong, more or less aligning with uh, what uh, Peter writes there. Thomas Schreiner uh, states it positively. Genuine freedom liberates believers to do what is good. And so I think I I like both of those uh, uh, phrases there uh, from those guys. live in my English Standard Version, act in the New American Standard, those are both supplied in most English translations. Uh, but what Peter is saying here, it's, it's a continuation of verse 13 and, uh, and the idea of be subject or, or submit yourselves. Christians are called to freedom, Galatians 5 verse 13. At the same time, as Peter emphasizes, Christians are God's slaves, bond servants, uh, bond slaves and, and servants and all that. Uh, and so that is also the uh, theological motivation for not using our freedom as a cover for evil. And, you know, we, we live, uh, at least we're broadcasting in America. America is the land of the free. So we truly know what it means to live as free people. Well, we did at least until coronavirus hit. Uh, but anyway, uh, <laughs> this, this freedom cannot and must not be used in order to justify moral evil. Some think, hey, free country, so we're free to do whatever we want, right? 
But as social critic Oz Guinness says, liberty requires restraint, but the only restraint consistent with liberty is self-restraint. Let me say it another way. Liberty requires virtue. But where does virtue come from? Well, isn't it Peter that says, add to your faith virtue? And so, therefore, without faith, we can't have virtue. And without virtue, it's only a matter of time before we are without liberty. Right. You got to serve someone. I forget, is it Bob Dylan, that great philosopher who said that? Got to serve someone? And that's, that's the case scripturally. Either we serve God in righteousness or we serve sin in unrighteousness. And you can see Romans 6, verses 13, 14, 17 through 20 as well in that same chapter 4, more on that where Paul talks about that. So, so we can't legislate morality, Nick? Uh, well, you can... In fact, that's kind of what the Ten Commandments are. But that won't make people moral, will it? No. Exactly, yeah. The only yeah, the only control that is commanded in Scripture is self-control. That's right. Yeah. Verse. Let's go back to verse 17 here. Um, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Love the brotherhood there and, and fearing God sandwiched between honor all people and honor the king, why why is it that love the brotherhood and fear God are sandwiched between honoring all people and honoring the king, Alex? Well, I can understand the need to remind these exiled Christians to still honor all people and the king. Why would you need that reminder? Well, because they're evil. They don't deserve it. That's why Peter starts out by saying, it's not for their sake. It's for the Lord's sake that you're going to do this. That's verse 13. But loving the brotherhood, fearing God, which is uh, that fear is a deep, reverent respect for God, that reminds us that we don't deserve what we, what Christ has done for us, uh, what he suffered for us. And Peter's going to outline that in a few more verses. Jesus said that the world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another, John 13, 35. And here we see the two-step dance that we must perform as Christians who are in the world but not of the world. With one foot, we step into the church and become the community of love and righteousness that will attract others to Christ. And with the other foot, we stay present within the secular society to prove that we are not the disease that plagues Rome, but rather we are the cure. And so that's what I see in this sandwiching of terms. What do you think, Nick? Uh, well said. Uh, and, you know, we've already seen back in chapter 1, Peter, he has exhorted these Christians to love one another earnestly from a pure heart, uh, 1 verse 22. So why why this command to these people? And, and now why repeat it? And certainly I think in the times that they were living as uh, exiles, persecution, uh, fire persecution even, um, I think the temptation for them would have been just to survive, just to survive with fellow Christians, you know, gather together, huddle together, rubbing shoulders together like so many marbles in a sack. But Peter has to command this, and that would imply that they were growing lax in fulfilling this new command. Or perhaps they were uh, rekindling former relationships with non-Christians. And so it would have been easy for these persecuted Christians to just kind of fall back into old patterns of life, relapse due to uh, the persecution, relapse into these old connections. 
how many Christians do this very same thing today? I think this is this is a, a, a problem which is perpetual in Christianity. Old relationships with people who know you became a Christian, but they themselves want no part of Christ. And and what ends up happening is more often than not, well, it's, it's even even some of our own poets have said it right. Bad company corrupts good morals. Uh, and Paul, of course, plugs that in that uh, well-known pagan maxim in First uh, Corinthians fifteen. We have exchanged the flesh for the spirit. And so, saved people love other saved people. We are inclined to honor uh, great people, powerful people, those with money, maybe like Bill Gates, athletes with exceptional skill, perhaps like Michael Jordan, the very intelligent, the late Stephen Hawking, for example, I think we look upon these people as, as having some position of honor inherent. And that seems particularly true in the political arena. Uh, if you, for example, received an invitation to the White House, well, I guess uh, because of the political division in our country now, you a lot of people would probably think twice. But I think most would no doubt recognize it at least as a great honor, whether they go or not. Whether you like the guy or not, you ought to respect the office. And so Peter does something interesting here. Honor everyone. All people are worthy of honor, not just the emperor. I don't know that Peter necessarily drags the emperor down to the common man's level, so much as he elevates everyone to a position of honor. Every person is someone who was created by God in his image and therefore is worthy of honor. So, Hmm. honor everyone. Of course, all this is rooted in uh, fear God. That's where it begins. If you fear God, your theology is going to influence your sociology. Okay, So that's, I guess, a brief way of saying that. Sure. All right, let's let's really get into the sticky wicket here, shall we? (laughs) Verse 18, Peter begins this discussion about uh, servants, slaves, and in verse 19, he talks about, let me get, uh, let me get my New American Standard here because, uh, yeah, for this finds favor, so submission to your masters, uh, this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. Talking about the suffering of the slave. So uh, what does for the sake of conscience towards God mean for the slave, Alex? Right, and that's the the New American Standard translation of that. Uh, I think the ESV says mindfulness of God or something to that effect. So under the law, Roman law, the slave was likely to find little to no recourse for being treated harshly. Uh, The Greek for being treated harshly is literally uh, beaten and struck with the fist. A slave's options uh, might be to fight back against the master, though that will probably end in the slave dying or the death of the slave and his family, if he had one. Another option would be to run away. But again, where would you go? How would you support yourself? How would you support your family if you had one? Well, how you would support yourself is probably how you got into slavery in the first place. You have to remember that most slaves were in slavery due to debt. 
In fact, historians have noted that around 40% of the population of first century Rome were slaves. Talk about normalizing, right? 40%. Peter could have said, run away, but he didn't. Uh, Peter could have said, fight back, but he didn't. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.21, if you can become free, then do so. But that's not quite the same as running away, now is it? Although Paul, he did intercede on behalf of a runaway slave named Onesimus in the letter of Philemon. See the podcast archives for that. So what's the solution? Well, like it or not, Peter says the solution is to endure suffering for the sake of conscience towards God. And I prefer that word conscience because it's the same word that's going to be used in a few other passages throughout Peter's letter. But in other words, when you endure suffering while under the earthly rule of government and masters, the highest authority, God, will consider it a worthy submission to himself and will give you a reward. Peter says, find favor with God. Peter sticks with this trajectory that we are submitting for the Lord's sake, that we are enduring for conscience sake. And this overlaps with another concept that I've mentioned before called sacred suffering. God accepts our suffering as a sacrifice if we offer it as such for the sake of others and for the good of God's kingdom. Now, we, of course, are not earning salvation since Christ already gave that gift to us. However, we can earn a reward and favor, and we also have to keep working on our own sanctification, and that happens by enduring trials. Leverage your suffering to find favor with God, which in turn equips you to be more effective as God's slave on earth to convert the world by emulating the suffering servants, Jesus Christ. Peter goes that direction in just a moment with the suffering service servant. Uh, what do you think, Nick? Well, as you noted, uh, my English standard says mindful of God, the, the slave who is uh, even even the, the slave that's under an unjust master, as he is described in verse 18, needs to be mindful of God. That is, uh, needs to have uh, a mindfulness, a consciousness of God's will and God's present uh, presence, even... Uh, have a sense of his or her own duty toward God. And God approves of this because the slave chooses God's authority over his own comfort and his own security, enduring sorrows and suffering unjustly or wrongfully for the will of God. And I think both the physical pain and the mental anguish are in view here. The Christian is to have a trusting awareness of God's presence and uh, a trust and awareness of God's never-failing care as they endure suffering, especially when we suffer for doing the right thing, when we suffer for doing God's will. Our faith is rooted in the knowledge that one day God will right all wrongs and he will vindicate the patient endurance of the Christian. This is what enables Christians to submit to injustice without bitterness and despair. It will also enable us to avoid improper responses like rebellion, revolt, hateful rhetoric, misplaced fear, and many other things. So, Well, Nick, all this talk about slavery kind of begs the question, why doesn't the New Testament just condemn slavery outright instead of merely providing moral instruction? Boy, that's a $64,000 question, isn't it? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Verse 18 
servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Um, Peter's instruction concerning submission to unreasonable or perverse masters by Christian slaves is perhaps the most difficult instruction in 1 Peter. Obedience to harsh masters must have been somewhat deflating and disappointing to the Christian slave who'd come to a Christian worldview where all people are created uh, by God. They're all equal in God's sight. And of course, like with the government, submission of slaves, it had limitations. If a master ordered a slave to do something against the will of God, I think the slave uh, should have, would have refused to obey a higher authority. Nevertheless, short of sin, the slave was to submit and obey even dishonest and crooked masters in all things out of respect and fear of God. So we need to step back into the the context into which Peter wrote. Slavery, it was an established institution when Peter penned these words. It had been in existence for millennia. God's people had been slaves in Egypt for centuries. There were provisions in the law designed to protect the slave and to prevent abuse. Exodus 21 is an example of that. Under the law, a slave only served seven years and then was released by his master with plenty of goods from his master's house. Deuteronomy uh, 15, verses 12 through 15, talk about that. And so the slave could go free unless the slave loved his master, in which he could stay and be a slave forever. Deuteronomy 15, verses 16 through 17, provide provision for that. Undergirding these laws was the reminder that Israel had been a slave in Egypt. That's at the heart of the teaching in Deuteronomy 15 and verse 15. I'm sure there was abuse, but to do so, a Jew would have to trample underfoot the law, the Torah. In the rest of the unenlightened world, the cruelty and the depravity of the sinful heart of humans was normally displayed in the slave-master relationship. It's true, there were pockets of light where slaves were treated well and special bonds formed, plenty lamented when slaves he loved died, but the norm seems to have been harsh and horrible treatment for slaves. Runaway slaves were branded with an F on the head for fugitivus. Slaves were crucified or fed to beasts for minor offenses. Slaves were killed when an owner lost his or her temper. Old slaves were discarded to the rubbish heap to to starve to death. Female slaves had their hair torn out and skin ripped from their faces by their mistress's nails. A slave was not a person, but property. Versus under the law, the Hebrew slave is called your brother. Under Roman law, whatever a master does to a slave undeservedly, in anger, willingly, unwillingly, in forgetfulness, after careful thought, knowingly, unknowingly, in judgment, justice, and law, it was legal. It was permissive. The uh, Roman world was full of slaves. Uh, you gave the estimate earlier 40%. I ran across figures of one-third to one-half of the Roman population was enslaved to the other portion of the empire. Now, the temptation for us, 21st century Christians, is to read Peter's words through the lens of our own dark history of slavery This would be a mistake for a couple of reasons. First, the slavery of the 19th century in America 
is a different animal from the slavery of antiquity. The largest difference was the slavery of antiquity did not discriminate based on race, sex, or any other qualifiers. Second, and this is perhaps more important, Peter's concern is not the slavery institution in and of itself, right, wrong, or otherwise, but how one behaves when in that relationship. And so Peter or Paul or any of the New Testament writers, they neither condemn nor condone slavery. Rather, he explains how Christian slaves and Christian masters are to relate to one another in Christ. His emphasis is ethics among believers who are in or under the institution of slavery. There's no diatribe bemoaning the evils of slavery. Neither is there a treatise on the benefits of slavery. There is simply the moral instruction. It is into the chaos of, of, of injustice and abuse that God speaks a word of order. He doesn't call for rebellion. He calls for respect. God does not call for revolution. He calls for reverence. Slaves are not to be subversive. They are to be submissive. That's the word of order uh, from God. Also, I, you know, others talk about, write about how the legitimacy of Christianity would have been threatened if you did get these full-blown, outright condemnations of the institution of slavery. Nobody would have taken it seriously. Maybe. Here's the thing, though. I do believe that there is instruction in the New Testament that provided the principles that would ultimately undermine the institution of slavery. Right. Do unto others as you want them to do to you. The things that Paul writes in Philemon, and we've, we've talked about that in the, the previous episode, as already stated. Uh, even the stuff that's, that Paul writes in Ephesians and what Peter writes here, I believe these principles, they are already at work undermining this cruel institution and that it would eventually go uh, the way of the dodo, or at least it was supposed to, right? Even now, we may not have uh, slavery here in America as it was practiced in the uh, 19th century and before that, but it still exists the world over. Uh, and so, again, it's the moral instruction that's given here that, that I place the emphasis and premium on, as Peter does. So that's what I see. Alex, what do you think? Yeah, I think when we think about, okay, why why didn't the New Testament just outright condemn slavery? You have to remember what kind of writing we're looking at with the New Testament. The New Testament is not one book. It's many books. Most of them were letters. It's worth noting that our New Testament was not written as Plato's Republic, okay? The New Testament isn't a framework for the ideal government or the ideal uh, legislative framework. Our job is the reclaiming of human allegiance away from all things other than Christ. In the process of discipling all the nations, it has and will continue to require the working out of Christianity within these nations' own constructs, which will require our own suffering at many times. But over time, the most diabolical of constructs or abusive constructs will die a natural death when true Christianity flourishes, because we do have a framework for Christian ethics, for kingdom ethics. But... Beware of the zombies, for the darkness will gladly return when the light begins to fade. Hmm. Well, Paul, uh, not Paul, <laughs> you're Nick, right? Okay, Nick, <laughs> so, last versus I checked. 18 through 21, we're still 
you know, thinking about slavery, thinking about modern day issues as well, what, how do you think Peter's instruction to slaves would be compatible with uh, critical theory, critical race theory? Mm. Yeah, cr- so critical theory, I guess we've got to do, and that's that's the buzzword these days, right, uh, is uh, critical theory and, and especially critical race theory. Uh, so uh, critical race theory is actually a uh, uh, subsection, um, uh, a category of critical theory. And so we need to back up and, I guess, have just a brief discussion about critical theory. It is a worldview which views reality through the lens of power structures. And, uh, Alex, I know you'll you'll talk about uh, there may be some value there. However, the application of this worldview, uh, it, it doesn't touch on the spiritual and the supernatural. Rather, it focuses on people. People are divided into groups. You have oppressors, those with power. And you have the oppressed, those without power. And such a dividing line runs throughout every category of humanity. Gender, sexual identity, physical ability, age, and, of course, race. And this is actually, I believe, one of the children of postmodernism. And postmodernism, that was the, uh, the worldview, is the worldview, that certain people, based on their gender, sex, age, race, they have had power for too long, and so we need to take it from them and we need to give it to other people. And if they will not give it freely, we will take it by force because violence for the sake of so-called justice is justified. After all, the ends justify the means. Critical race theory, as again a, a category, a branch of critical theory, is the application of critical theory to race. And it says that uh, white people are the power holders, and so you get things like white fragility and, and white privilege. And so, since white people are the power holders, therefore, based solely on the color of their skin, they are the oppressors of minority groups. It doesn't matter if you don't have a racist bone in your body, your skin tells a different story, and it tells us everything we need to know about you. Now, reading Peter's instruction here uh, in verses 18 and following, he must have been the most unwoke pastor in church history. <laughs> While he recognizes power structures, slaves and masters, his method for living under the contemporary hegemonic structures is diametrically opposed to what we are hearing from the woke today. Be subject, endure sorrows, do good and suffer. But Peter, what? What's more, Peter roots his exhortations firmly in the gospel. Verse 21, Christ also suffered for you. This is the key distinction, I'm persuaded, between critical theory and a biblical paradigm, the locus of truth. Truth is not derived from the lived experience of the oppressed as though the slave, by virtue of his slavery, has special access to truth than his master does. By the way, that's a key tenet of critical theory and also a key tenet of Gnosticism. Rather, That old chestnut. (laughs) There it is. Truth is uh, trans, uh, transcendental. It spans time and space. It's applicable to all people groups, however they're classified. And so, therefore, the gospel has equal bearing upon the Christian slave as it does the unbelieving master, albeit with different trajectories, one for glory and the other for destruction. God's kingdom is not about slavery liberation, except as 
that slavery and liberation are defined in relation to Christ. So, we're no longer slaves of sin, but slaves of righteousness. We have been set free from sin for freedom, as uh, as Christ set us free. At the root of the human condition, the human problem, is sin, and that impacts all people, slave, free, Jew, Gentile, male, female, and the rest. Uh, And so, I believe that critical theory, as it is being manifest today in our culture, is incompatible with the uh, biblical message. My take on it. Alex, what do you think? You know, the ironic thing is, well, first of all, I agree with what you said. You you broke down, I think, the terminology and and did a good job stating all of that. I just, I find it ironic because critical theory... And viewing reality through power structures, that would actually apply pretty well to the spiritual world and to the Christian prerogative of transferring souls out of the dominion of darkness and into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It's in Colossians. But like all things dark, right? Intelligent evil takes what is true and takes what is from God and inverts it and twists it in order to bring about chaos. This intelligent evil would say, don't focus on the spiritual battle. Focus on battling each other. That's classic diversion and inversion techniques. The question should always be, though, who is writing the narrative? And is that narrative from Yahweh God? Critical theory, as it is being applied today, that is not the narrative from God. But if we apply it to the spiritual realm, ah, there we will find truth because there is a battle and there is a power struggle and power structure which centers around the expansion of God's kingdom through Jesus Christ. Would you say that the the distinction here is the lens through which we view things? Like... uh are we viewing the Bible through the lens of critical theory, or are we viewing critical theory through the lens of the Bible? That's it hit the nail on the head. It makes yeah. all the difference. Where is your presuppositional framework, your worldview? If it's the biblical Christian worldview, then that's the lens through which you view critical theory and everything else. But there's the struggle. We take our current problems and current worldviews and we insert it back and view it through the bible through that and that's where people fall into pitfalls into into traps and mistakes and confusion and confusion is a great military tactic that's why the enemy uses it against us all the time let's uh press forward here into verse 21 a very very key text here um I know we've been talking a lot about uh, suffering, uh, especially as it pertains to the slave under unjust masters. Uh, But verse 21, uh, For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Who has been called to suffer here, and why have they uh, been called to suffer? You know, at first, it may sound like Peter is just talking to the slaves, because that's the immediate context and their need for righteous endurance. However, 
I think, a closer look at the context, and one can see that Peter intends for all Christians to accept the call of suffering. Because in verse 25, he says, For you, that's plural, you all, were continually straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. The Christians don't need to go looking for suffering. There's plenty of suffering that comes our way just by the nature of living in a fallen world. But if suffering encounters all of us, how then are we called to suffer? There's the key. We are called to suffering through the way in which we suffer. We are called to endure suffering in a godly way, in a godly manner. And again, we can leverage our suffering to the advantage of our own sanctification and our prayers and our mission. Now, why do we suffer is because of sin, because of our own sin, because of other people's sins, because of human sin, because of sin in the heavenly places like evil angels and demons and whatnot. When Jesus entered the world, though he himself was holy, he operated within an unholy environment. So now the Christian is to do likewise in his steps for the purpose of bringing salvation to the world. Though our work brings light into the world, you have to remember it's not until the return of Christ that we finally can be a sacred people living in a sacred creation. Right now, we create sacred space wherever we are because we ourselves are becoming more sacred, but... We're not in that renewed creation yet. That's what we're fighting for. That's what Christ will usher in. At that last day, the wheat and the tares will finally be separated. Until then, we have been called to a sacred suffering. Any thoughts, Nick? Well said. Well, verse 22, there are some uh, Christological things here that we should not glance over. And the first one which it's funny that we have to talk about this, but we really do. Was Jesus really sinless, as Peter says in verse 22? Yeah, it, it is unfortunate that we that, that this question is so relevant. Uh, and it, it is relevant because research shows that an increasing number of people believe that Christ did commit sin. According to the latest findings by the American Worldview Inventory published earlier this year, back in April, of responders believe Jesus sinned. They believe in Jesus, but they believe he sinned. This Jesus that these people believe in is not the Jesus Peter and the other apostles knew and preached. Peter is adamant, and he is clear that Jesus was sinless. Verse 22 begins, He committed no sin. This testimony is confirmed throughout the Bible. Jesus says, uh, excuse me, Paul says, Jesus is him who knew no sin. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. John says, in him, that is in Christ, there is no sin. Present tense, even when John was putting pen to parchment, writing about the exalted Christ, there is no sin in him. 1 John 5, excuse me, 1 John 3 and verse 5. The writer of Hebrews affirms that while Jesus was tempted in every way, the same as us, unlike the rest of humanity, Jesus was without sin, holy, innocent, unstained. Hebrews 4 verse 15, also 7 verse 26. So I affirm absolutely, unequivocally, that the Lord Jesus Christ was and is sinless, without sin, 
perfect, period, full stop. There you go. Mic drop. <laughs> what about you, uh, Alex? Absolutely. Was Jesus yeah, yeah. really sinless? Of course, absolutely. Yeah. Peter's point rests on that premise. He doesn't have a point without that. That Jesus suffered for us, not for anything he did wrong, because he did no wrong. That's the whole point. So, too, the application for the Christian is we must suffer for Christ's sake and for doing what is good, not for doing what is wrong. Additionally, if we go on to the next verse, not only did Jesus suffer for us, he didn't revile in return. He didn't threaten his persecutors in return, and neither should we. This example that Peter says in verse 21, it's the Greek word hupogramos, and that was a template to learn how to write or draw something. You know, my kids, they have alphabet books that have you trace the lines to make the proper shapes for letters. The Christian is like a child learning to write. Must uh, We must struggle to trace the lines drawn for us by Jesus. At first, there may be little resemblance, but eventually through practice, we can suffer in the same way Christ suffered. He is the perfect, we are the copiers. Imagers, if you will. Any thoughts, Nick? No, well said. Verse uh, 24, uh, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Uh, so it's, he's saying here, Peter's saying, Jesus bore our sins. Alex, what does it mean that Jesus bore our sins? Yeah, our sins, not his sins, right? Right. And the Greek here for bore is anaphero, which is most often used in a priestly setting. And so think of the high priest in the temple offering up animal sacrifices to God on behalf of Israel's sins. That's the idea here. It's on behalf of. Typically, when we look at the sacrificial system, we see it in this kind of ritual that uh, is basically penal substitution. The animal takes the punishment in place of the worshiper. Now, I'm not denying that some of that is in view here. Uh, That is a legitimate part of it. However, there's another important facet that can help us, I think, be balanced in our viewpoint of what Jesus does at the cross. Uh, The Old Testament says that life is in the blood, right? It's this spiritual component in the blood. It's our life force is what I'll call it. And it comes from God. The blood of acceptable sacrifices could be used as a cleansing agent like spiritual soap to renew, to clean the life of the worshiper. And this is why the Israelites were sprinkled with blood, right? Exodus 24 verse 8, which Peter references in 1 Peter 1 verse 2. And so too, since Jesus is the creator and source of all life, His blood then provides the inexhaustible supply of spiritual cleansing and renewal uh, that is necessary to be free from our sin. And so as our great high priest, Jesus brought our sins to the altar of the cross. He neutralized those sins through the cleansing power of his own blood, which is full of his life force, the life force which brings and sustains all of creation. And that thus makes him both the perfect priest and the perfect sacrifice because it's his own blood which he presents. There's a book called Hebrews. It talks all about it. You should read it sometime. (laughs) Uh, The only thing I would toss in here is uh, there is a connection between the sinlessness of Christ and his sacrifice for our sins uh, on the cross in his atoning work. That without the sinlessness of Christ, it's just another man dying on the cross um, the 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 sinlessness of Christ points to His deity, 
and his death on the cross points to his humanity, and both of those things are essential. Um, That's uh, right. In order for atonement to be uh, accomplished and and realized, um, you mentioned about the high priest here. Uh, he Christ is both at once high priest and sacrifice together, That's which right. is uh, a very unique function of his priesthood. Uh, under the Levitical system, the high priest was not the sacrifice. He was the high priest who was performing the ritual. The sacrifice was the sacrifice, the animal. Christ at once is both of those, the great high priest as well as the sacrifice for sin. Right. And I, and uh, I guess what I, uh, what I uh, was trying to communicate as well is that sin compromises our life force, right? We have life force in our blood, but it becomes compromised with sin. And so if Jesus' blood... Uh, if he if Jesus sinned in a human body, then his blood and the life force in his blood has been compromised, and it's no longer sufficient to restore our life force. So there's the the inextricable you know connection. Good stuff on atonement theory here, right? <laughs> uh, verse twenty four, still here. He himself bore our sins in his body. On the cross? No, on the tree. Wait a minute, uh, Alex. Did Jesus bear our sins on a cross or on a tree? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, this is one of those hangups for our Jehovah's Witness friends. So Jesus, he died on a Roman cross. The Greek is staros. It's a stake sunk into the earth with a cross piece fitted to the upper part. That's what Jesus died on. However, Peter uses the word kulon. Or tree. In this particular passage, he uses that. In some other passages, New Testament writers use that word. Now, let's just think for a second. Let's see if we can think of any theological reason why the New Testament authors would sometimes refer to the cross as a tree. Hmm. Let's see. Jesus came to save us, to give us life, to make us a new creation. Wait, but didn't didn't God already create us? In the Garden of Eden. Oh, yeah. Then they ate from the tree. Okay. There's the connection. What Jesus did for us on the cross is inextricably tied to what happened to Adam and Eve. From a tree, humanity died. And God in human flesh, dying on a tree, gave humanity life again. The parallels, the imagery, it's beautiful. But more importantly, it's true. And so that's why the cross would sometimes be referred to as the tree. It's a th- it's theological messaging. And here's a fun fact, folks. Golgotha, the place where Jesus was crucified, was called, the. it means the place of the skull. And it was called that because that's where the Jews believed that Adam's bones were buried. Now think about that. The blood of the second Adam pouring into the earth, which had the bones of the first Adam. And I don't know how the Jews knew that, that that was the place, um, but there's a plethora of really early church writers who just took it for granted that that's true, and that's and that's what happened. <laughs> so yeah, so that, there that was, you go. <laughs> that was one of the theories. Others talked about David buried Goliath's skull there, that it looked like a skull, and so... Right, yeah. yeah. Uh, that that, uh, that uh, connection between first Adam, second Adam, that certainly is alluring, it is indeed. Well, what the are your tree. thoughts about the the tree, the cross yeah, tree, the, tree cross? The, the tree is the cross, right? I mean, that's that's <laughs> Peter knew, that's right? right? Peter knew 
that Jesus died on a cross, and so he, he, I believe here at least, he prefers the term tree to connect his audience to Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23, the, the curse upon those hung on a tree for judicial punishment. Uh, we know Peter read Paul. Uh, he talks about that in Second Peter. And so he may have been influenced by Paul's usage of this in one of his earlier epistles, uh, Galatians. In Galatians 3.13, Paul quotes Deuteronomy 21.23 to make the point of Jesus's being accursed for us. Uh, and so he was hung on the cross, the tree. And so Paul, Peter, they, they knew, all right? So there was, there was no confusion that, oh, you know, there's some kind of early church conspiracy to take a tree and turn it into a... No, no, it was... They knew, and and they used the language they did for specific purposes. Uh, and I see here again the Deuteronomy twenty one connection, uh, but it could have been, as you point out, a uh, a divine reversal, as it were, from the tree to the tree. Um, uh, well, what, was, that, that, what happened at what happened in Eden has been undone in Christ, and and it may not be. Uh, completely separated from your reference to Deuteronomy 21, right? Because it says, cursed is one who's hung upon a tree, but it doesn't say why is it cursed for one who's hung upon a tree. It just says it is. right. And so perhaps even behind that is again a echo of the fall of Adam and Eve from the uh, fruit which they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden. So mm. it could all fit together. We might, we might be saying two sides of the same coin. Well, Nick... Verses 21 through 25, this whole section, this last one that we've been um, spinning out on with the Christological uh, references, there are Old Testament things packed into here. We've mm-hmm. talked about some of them, but what do you think, Nick, is the Old Testament text that Peter is interacting with here at the end of chapter 2? How does he apply it? Why don't you talk about that? Yeah, so Peter... Uh, he is exhorting slaves concerning how they should live while serving under unjust masters and circumstances. And then it seems as though he kind of he broadens it, or at least it can be broadened in its application. He makes an appeal to the example or the pattern, as you pointed out, when you trace over uh, an underlying example. Uh, he, he connects it to Christ, that Christians slave and free alike, are to pattern their life after the model of Christ. And specifically, Peter presents Christ as the suffering servant, arguably a picture of Christ that Peter was the first to discern, given he is the one in Acts who repeatedly uh, and, and only portrays Christ as servant, servant of God, uh, and, and connects it with the suffering aspect. Acts 3, verse 13 also verse 18 and verse 26, Acts 4, verse 27, and verse 30. In those uh, two instances, it is Peter who is connecting Jesus to, uh, calling him the servant and connecting it to uh, suffering. And so leaning into this image of Christ as a suffering servant, Peter brings to his discussion both quotes and allusions to Isaiah 53, which is the it's called the Locus Classicus for Suffering Servant Christology. Let's walk through this. Verse 22. Uh, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. This follows Isaiah uh, 53, verse 9, the second part of verse 9, in, uh, in the Septuagint very closely, uh, inserting the pronoun and substituting sin for lawlessness. So slight change by Peter, uh, but uh, it has Christological import. Christ's suffering 
was the pinnacle of injustice since he was sinless and therefore was suffer- his suffering was undeserved. It was unjust, uh, as it is styled in verses 19 and 20. So Peter is holding up the model of Christ in the prophetic word to show that Christ identifies with uh, slaves and, by extension, everyone who suffers unjustly, all Christians who suffer unjustly. And he also uses this to exhort these uh, Christians, slaves in particular, to follow the pattern marked out by Christ. Verse 23 Uh, This carries echoes of Isaiah 53. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Uh, When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Uh, Just as the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 did not open his mouth and was voiceless, so Jesus did not revile in return, he did not threaten. And perhaps at the moment, the persecution that Peter's audience is experiencing comes in the form of verbal abuse. So he points his readers to the pattern of Christ, who was silent before his slaughterers. What is it Peter has just instructed these disciples uh, to do when uh, there are foolish and um, uh, foolish evildoers? He has just exhorted them to keep their conduct honorable, and that through their good conduct they would silence the ignorance of foolish people, verses 12 and 15. And so, yeah, uh, don't don't repay the reviling with reviling. And so he exhorts them to respond just as Christ did. Uh, and he'll emphasize this again in 3 and verse 9. Verse 24 is perhaps the densest collection of, uh, I call them amalgamations, where uh, Peter, in this instance, Paul does it too. They take uh, verses and they just smash them together, and and also quotations. And again, it's from Isaiah fifty three. Uh, he himself bore our sins. This combines phrases from Isaiah fifty three twelve and also fifty three verse four, respectively, in that order. And uh, it follows the Septuagint's translation of the uh, Hebrew "our sorrows" uh, with "our sins." Um, and so Peter he inserts in his body to the tree in order to make absolute his conviction that Jesus of Nazareth, who died on the cross, was the long-awaited Messiah, that he bore our sins to the cross. And I believe that emphasizes the complete removal of our sins from us, and they are all placed on Christ because he bore them to the cross. That's uh, the emphasis in the original language. Our sins went to the cross, and they were carried away. And Uh, It is so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. This points to the purpose of the atoning work of Christ. It is a new kind of life. That's the goal of the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf and for our sins. This new life is marked by a cessation from sin, which begins at baptism. We are not sinless, but we are learning to sin less, I think is uh, a good way of saying that. And that walk, Hmm. that journey begins at baptism, emphasized here by what is called the Aorist tense, a snapshot event in history. What is the snapshot event that every Christian shares? Well, it's baptism. That happens in that moment. And then this verse ends with a quotation from Isaiah 53 and verse 5, by his wounds you were healed. Peter opting here for the second person rather than the first person, we were healed. Uh, and and so by his wounds you have been healed. Perhaps he is retaining the exhortative form of the address. Uh, 
uh, addressing the straight to his audience. Sin is the disease, Christ is the cure, and the metaphor of healing is used for conversion. And then rounding this out, the last verse, verse 25, Peter finishes off his interaction with Isaiah 53 with uh, several linguistic connections here to Isaiah 53 and verse 6. You were straying like sheep, and that parallels the Septuagint. We have all been misled or, uh, like sheep. Isaiah saw the nation of Israel wandering like sheep from Yahweh, and Peter uses that experience of Israel's alienation to remind these Christians of their pre-Christian experience. They were wandering, but now... Uh, But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. They've turned to the risen shepherd of the sheep, perhaps hinting at the lordship of Christ, and the overseer of your souls, and and that seems to be a reference to God who searches hearts, perhaps. Uh, But here's the thing. Peter's commentary and his interpretation of Isaiah 53 relates how the suffering servant hymn applies specifically to Christ his suffering on the cross, how his vicarious death is beneficial spiritually and ethically. Not only has Christ's suffering freed us from sins, but it informs how Christians live in the here and the now, especially while living under unjust circumstances. Peter doesn't call his readers, the church, to social activism or even social justice rooted in critical theory. Rather, he calls them to patient endurance modeled after the pattern of Christ. Those who suffer continually entrust themselves to a just judge while they do good. Uh, and this is, this is a common theme throughout all of First uh, Peter. We see it here in 2.23, 1 verse 17 is mentioned, and then also in 4.19. So, uh, woo, that's Peter's interaction <laughs> with Isaiah 53 uh, as he kind of concludes what is for us chapter 2. Alex, what do you see here? Well, you definitely well upholstered that subject. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just have one little one little nugget to throw in that I thought was interesting. I, I found uh, in reference to Jesus's wounds here in First Peter, um, the Greek in First Peter, and also in the Septuagint of Isaiah fifty three, the word for wounds is not plural; it's actually singular. By his wound, singular. By his bruise, singular. You were healed. And though Jesus did take on many torturous wounds through his passion, the images of Jesus being a single whole sacrifice, a single offering for our sins. Uh, some scholars have noted that really even in addition to the the theological implications, uh, practically speaking, what actually happened to his body, the extent to which Jesus was beaten and flogged would have been so severe that his body would have looked like one big swollen wound, each cut and bruise blending indistinguishably into the next. And this is the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. This is the overseer of our souls. Uh, We can believe him. We can uh, trust him. We can adore him. We can love him. This is our good shepherd. This is our overseer. And that's the end of chapter two, folks. We're going to do chapter three next time. But uh, as always, at the end of an episode, we uh, like to end with our featured creature. Featured creature. And this week's featured creature is Lucifer. Nick, why don't you tell us about Lucifer? The only place the name Lucifer appears in the Bible is in Isaiah 14 and verse 12. And the only translation which is translated as Lucifer is the King James Version. 
and their translation was much more influenced by Latin grammar than by Hebrew or Greek grammar, by the way. Uh, and that's the case here. My Latin Vulgate reads, uh, well, so Latin would be uh, Lucifer, uh, and that is the translation uh, for the Hebrew term Haleel, uh, which is translated in my English standard as O Day Star. This is what is called a hapax legomenon. Uh, it's, in other words, this is the only appearance of this term in the Hebrew Bible. The Septuagint has translated it dawn bringer, and that's a good approximation of the Hebrew, which means shining one or morning star. And looking at the context, if you back off and look at Isaiah 13 and 14, they are a unit that contain an oracle against Babylon. It starts in 13.1, an oracle concerning Babylon. And then Isaiah 14 begins with the promise of the restoration of Israel, verses 1 and 2. But for this to happen, the king of Babylon needs to be removed. And so begins this oracle, the oracle, this taunt against the king of Babylon in verse 3. And the bulk of Isaiah 14 is about the impending judgment coming upon the king of Babylon. The tyranny of this oppressive ruler will come to an end, as described in verses 4 through 8. And that happens when his physical life is ended, and he is sent to the grave and Sheol, uh, verses 9 through 11. And so from the heights of his arrogance, he is laid low, verses 12 through 15. And this is poetically portrayed as his being cast down from heaven to the depths of Sheol. doesn't get much bigger in its fall than that. So <laughs> he who would attempt to be God's equal is shown for being the feeble creature he really is. Therefore, Daystar's light is snuffed out in the far reaches of the pit, as it is styled in verse 15. Now many see behind this uh, oracle against the king of Babylon. Uh, behind this story is another story as old as time, and it is the fall of Satan uh, at some point in, I guess, eternity past is kind of the way uh, I think about it. So what is poetically portrayed in this taunt acts with double meaning or even typologically. Satan is this archetype in the spiritual realm of all human rulers who become swollen with pride, and his, his sin was conceit, uh, as we see over in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 6. Jesus tells us, he did fall from heaven. I saw Satan fall like lightning, Luke 10 and verse 18 says. So the king of Babylon, swollen with pride, fits the typological mold established by Satan's fall from heaven. The once glorious being, Satan, is cast out of heaven for attempting to make himself equal with God. And so he who would attempt to be God's equal is shown for being the feeble creature he really is. In which case, Daystar acts both as a figure for the king of Babylon as well as the devil. The star that once was brightest is now extinguished. And that connection, I, I think it's, it's possible. Some work uh, has been done in seeing connections uh, intertextually in Isaiah. Uh, uh, before I get to that, though, uh, there is a connection that some make to a Canaanite myth concerning uh, Haleel, son of Shekhar, a minor god, he attempted to overthrow Zaphon, the mountain of assembly, for the gods. He was rebuffed. He was cast into Sheol. And while the connections are alluring, I prefer to see those intertextual connections in Isaiah with Sinatra, king of Babylon. Uh, Sinatra gloated that he had gone up to the heights of the mountains, to the far recesses of Lebanon in 37 
and verse 24. And that can be paralleled with Isaiah 14 and verse 13, the the mountains that uh, Sinatra claims to have scaled, that can be paralleled with the Mount of Assembly. Maybe one of them was the Mount of Assembly in his own mind. And then uh, Lebanon, uh, the far recesses of Lebanon. Well, for Isaiah, who is an Israelite living in Israel, what would have been north of Israel? It would have been Lebanon. And so Sinatra claims uh, he, he's gloating and boasting about how he went there as well. Uh, so that's the parallel there, Le- Lebanon with the north. Sinatra raised his voice and eyes against the Holy One of Israel, 37.23 says. It was an attempt to make himself like the Most High, perhaps, Isaiah 14, verse 14. The morning star who makes the world like a desert in 14 and verse 17 can be paralleled with Sinatra, who boasts of having dug, drank, and dried up the streams of Egypt in 37 and verse 25. Other examples could be cited, but I believe these are sufficient to show that the morning star of Isaiah 14 is readily identified with Sinatra in Isaiah 37. But wait, someone might say, Sinatra, I thought he was king of Assyria. And that's true, but he, like other kings of Assyria, uh, would and did call himself king of Babylon. And indeed, Babylon was under the rule of Assyria uh, for a time. So uh, that's what I see here concerning Lucifer. Alex, what did you find? Yeah, so I I like what you said about uh, there are sometimes a story within a story. And that's probably what we're looking at here in Isaiah 14. Lucifer is one of the many names slash attributes associated with the Satan. Sometimes we usually just say Satan, but uh, it's it's technically it's the Satan, the Hasatania. Yeah. So, yet, um, how did this association occur? Right. This is this is interesting. There's no explicit connection that says Lucifer is Satan, and yet that's the case. But how do we make that case? What's the connection? You noted uh, Jesus referring to Satan falling from heaven like lightning. So you do, you do have a falling connection right there. I think that's a good connection. Here is some connective tissue that I'll throw out there for consideration. Because, uh, you know, we could speak about Satan for quite some time. And so I'll, I'll try to limit it to what makes Lucifer relevant to our talk about Satan. So first you have to remember that stars in the ancient Near East uh, and in the Bible are living creatures. Uh, Sometimes they're called gods, and they also represent authority. The morning star, or daybringer, was a reference to the planet Venus, because back then planets were called wandering stars. The image of a wandering star as opposed to a fixed star within a constellation That became good imagery for speaking about rebellious beings in the heavenly realms. Of course, you can apply that to earthly authorities, you know, the story within the story. But back to the heavenly imagery. How did this bright, glorious star, uh, because that's what brightness was was referred to. It uh, It was the glory of the star, the brightness of the star. Uh, And Venus was a very bright star. Venus was the brightest star at sunrise. It was the brightest star at sunset, therefore earning the title of morning star or evening star, respectively. So the brightness of a star was thought of in terms of its glory. Uh, And so how did this bright, glorious star, whose glory must have corresponded then to its authority and its position, how did it become a wandering star? 
well, through rebellion, through pride, trying to take over the North. And so here's the thing in terms of stars, because uh, I believe in the passage says you want to ascend the Mount of the Assembly. Uh, well, the Mount of the Assembly is, uh, uh, what is that? It's, it's Har Moed, which is, is probably actually the reference to Har Megiddo. Uh, Armageddon in the book of Revelation. But I digress. Anyway, Harmoed, he says, is above the stars. Well, what's what's the north in the stars in terms of astrology? Well, in terms of stars, the north star is Polaris. And from our perspective, as we look up at the stars in the night sky, all of the constellations look like they are circling around Polaris. They're circling in a counterclockwise position. So Polaris stays in the same place. It's the north star. And it seems that... Uh, in this story within a story, Venus wanted to be the center of the constellations, but instead was cast down. This is the story of Lucifer, who then gets associated with the supernatural rebel, the Satan. Well, if the Dawnbringer fell, then who will fill the seat of authority he once held? And I say that's probably us. There are references to the Christian being given the morning star. That's 2 Peter 1.19, Revelation 2.28. Jesus has it in Revelation 22.16. Jesus now has all authority in heaven and on earth, Matthew 28.18. He will give us that authority too. And thus, he brings us in the resurrection into our reward of reigning and ruling with him. That's why it says he gives us the bright morning star. It's that position of authority, that transformation into a bright and glorious being uh, in the new heaven and new earth. So remember, when you hear about the latest Hollywood star or watch Dancing with the Stars, the only true stars are the ones made by Jesus, and the rest are all fallen and or imposters. And that's our featured creature. Well, that's going to do it, ain't it? Yeah. I went the astrotheology route. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Man, we're such nerds. But this was this has been a great <laughs> podcast. <laughs> you think? <laughs> this has been an excellent podcast. I think it went great. What do you think, Nick? Uh, yeah, no. We... we uh... Well, I, I did a lot of talking. I didn't realize I had that much to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it was all good stuff. And uh, if the listener also thinks it's good stuff, what can they do to help us? Well, uh, you can – so uh, I, I just found out we're no longer in the Google Play Music Store because the Google Play Music Store no longer exists. Oh. <laughs> <Aww. laughs> uh, they transferred all their stuff to YouTube Music. So, um, But our stuff isn't there. I looked. Anyway – we are exclusive to Apple right now in the Apple Podcast uh, Store. Just go in there, search Swordplay. You'll find us there. Uh, download episodes to your particular device. Take it with you. And uh, leave a review. That'll help boost our ratings there in uh, in the podcast store. Uh, and also, you can find us on the intro web, uh, swordplay.cast.rocks. You can share that website on social media if you are so inclined to help get the word out as well. If you have a question... You can text it in to the Swordplay question line, 316-24-SWORD, 316-245, no, 247-9673. Let me say that one more time because I can't remember writing. 
316-247-9673 or 316-24-SWORD if you have a question. Uh, also, you can email us a question. Alex, where can they do that? Our email is swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. That's swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for uh, waiting uh, through the, the heavy theological waters of First Peter. This has been another episode of Swordplay, a double-edged perspective on Scripture. <laughs>